I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast brought to you by the Club of Rome in partnership with the BMW Foundation. Today we're discussing empowering female leadership in times of global challenges. My name is Philippa Nuttall and I'm a freelance journalist and writer based in Brussels. With me to discuss this really important subject is Anna Rathman, Executive Director of the Jane Goodall Institute, Sharon Burrow, a global advocate for human rights, climate action and the just transition, and former Secretary General of the International Trade Union Confederation, and Sylvia Mukasa, an award-winning entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Global X, which works to close skills, funding and digital transformation gaps, especially around emerging technologies. So thank you to all three of you and welcome. And it's great that you're with us today to discuss this subject. Um, so to start, I'd um, like to, to open with the idea that we're living during a, a polycrisis, many people have said at the moment. So we have the issue of climate change, biodiversity loss, growing inequality, the energy and cost of living crisis. We could probably continue with that list, unfortunately. Um, and despite progress, and there has been progress, um, the majority of our leaders, especially in the political um, sphere, are still men. Um, so where are the women um, and do we need more of them during this time of crisis? And, and if we need more of us, um, why do we need more of us? Um, perhaps, Sylvia, you could you could kick us off. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Philippa. That's um, a very important question. And um, it's important that we recognize um, right now what's happening is there's a lot of um, challenges that are going on globally. Uh, for example, uh, climate change, biodiversity loss, inequality, um, energy cost issues, and so much more. And the question of whether we need more women in leadership positions during this time of crisis is a complex one. But many might argue that greater gender diversity in leadership can bring valuable perspectives and solutions to this multifaceted challenges. And this is why. So a lot has been said, and um, a lot of research has also gone into this. And some of the things that have come out are that uh, when we bring different voices into uh, different conversations, and also as we address different challenges, diverse perspectives are always very important. And so bringing women's experiences and viewpoints often differ from those of men. And this diversity can lead to more comprehensive problem solving. Um, and in the context of poly crisis, having women in leadership positions can bring fresh insights and approaches to tackle these complex issues. Then there's also representation. Um, roughly half of the world's population are women and their interests and concerns should be adequately represented in decision-making processes. Therefore, having women uh, in leadership roles ensures a more equitable representation of society's needs and priorities. Then there's also collaboration and consensus building. So when different voices are brought into different conversations, um, more often we will find that um, uh, the, the perspectives of these different voices are actually captured and um, we build a general consensus uh, because different voices have been included in um, the different, uh, in addressing different uh, aspects of what affects us. So it's very important to think around collaboration and building consensus around the issues that we have rather than coming up with solutions and then another uh, gender feels left out. So it's important that we have women in these conversations. The other is empowerment. So seeing women in leadership roles can serve as an inspiration to other women and girls encouraging them to pursue leadership positions and to also contribute to addressing global crisis. And this can lead to a broader talent pool of individuals with diverse backgrounds and experiences working on these different issues. Um, another thing I'd like to bring out is mitigating gender inequality. So many of the crises mentioned, including um, inequality, having gender specific dimensions, uh, women often face disproportionate impacts in areas like poverty, education, and access to resources. And this is a global issue. So um, if we are to address the gender inequalities 
then it's important that we have women in leadership roles that can advocate for policies and initiatives that address these disparities. However, it's also crucial to note, and uh, this is as I conclude my contribution to this question, is that it's important to note that the effectiveness of leadership does not solely depend on gender. The key is to have a diverse and inclusive leadership that includes individuals from various backgrounds and perspectives. And moreover, women should not be expected to solve these complex challenges alone. Instead, collaboration among people of all genders is very necessary. And therefore, um, in summary, while we're increasing the representation of women in leadership, um, it's not a panacea. Uh, it can contribute positively to addressing the poly crisis by bringing diverse perspectives, promoting equitable uh, decision-making and inspiring a broader range of people uh, to engage in finding solutions to these critical global challenges. Over to you, Philippa, thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. That was an extremely comprehensive uh, response. Um, that was great. Um, Anna, perhaps from your point of view, I mean, do you agree with what Sylvia said? And, and this question of where are the women? Why are we still in the 21st century when, as Sylvia says, 50% of the population are women? Do we still need to have this conversation? Yeah. Um, well, yes to everything that um, Sylvia was um, adding in her remarks. I was I was writing them down, Sylvia, as you were as you were writing them. I think, um, or as you were speaking them, I think what was especially um, resonant and the word that I kept coming back to was inclusivity that this is you know yes it is about better gender equality yes it is about representation but all of that is for to create an inclusive environment where leaders can look like anything um, and where someone is recognized for their leadership ability not because of their gender not because of their background not, not because of any other um you know, factors. Um, there's something that we say often within the Jane Goodall Institute, and that's a see it, be it. Um, and that is that is why it's important to have um, representation. That is why it's important that there are women in leadership capacities. Um, because as Sylvia said, if young, if young people can see it, they can be it. Um, and that's something that, you know, I think is is an important element to this too. Where are they? Um, Philippa <laughs> asked the question, where are they? They're there, they're there. And, um, you know, I feel strongly that leadership can look like a lot of things. It can take a lot of different forms and we really need to encourage one another to step into these roles, support one another for what that means for any kind of sacrifices um, and other aspects of life, but really it comes back to inclusivity and making sure that there is an environment where everyone can participate. Super, thanks, Anna. And, and, and Sharon, from your point of view, and especially what you've seen um, in the world of business and industry through your work uh, in the in the trade unions, do you agree with what, what, what Anna's just said? And, and do you feel there is that support there to, to create a more inclusive um, leadership system, which we're not necessarily seeing at the moment? I think our, uh, our architecture globally has reinforced a, a model of business and society that is siloed. So when a male CEO, and there are exceptions, of course, but in, in typical format, when a CEO walks through the door of a company, they put aside their family life, their church life, their community life, whatever the other elements of their life may be because they feel they're expected to play to a dominant playbook that they expected to be a CEO who has this fundamental set of KPIs, mostly around profit take and reporting back to shareholders. That means they must be singularly focused. And so in that context, I think the failure of uh, a more inclusive business model is actually also a failure of productivity. It's a failure of innovation. It's a failure of um, more broadly thinking about how you deal with the business risk. And in the context of a societal risk, that's created not just a poly crisis, but a perma crisis, because we've perpetuated this model of business this model of society that is still discriminatory, 
this uh, economy that's based on the rape of natural resources and indeed um, uh, an energy system that in and of itself, as well as the products we manufacture, like plastics, are destroying the very home that we live in, from our land to our oceans. And then a model of inequality that is based on a notion that you make profits, but not necessarily making profits to share. My question is always, why is it that we can create wealth and we can, we've shown it, four, six, seven times more GDP in the last 40 years than, you know, depending where you are in the world, than, uh, than at that point. But we fail to share it. So we have this massive inequality. We don't have systems of resilience like social protection. I do believe, and it's not as simple as men and women, because women can be captured by the dominant uh, model as well. But I do believe that women have a broader skill set they uh, are the fabric of their uh, family, so the care, the multidisciplinary nature of their day from, you know, looking after their children and perhaps older parents and neighbours and community through to actually thinking about the nature of the way we live our lives, the budgeting and the sharing of scarce resources. I do think women bring a broader set of skills and they do not leave themselves at the door, by and large. I do worry about the co-option of women into that dominant model, but I think women have a greater capacity to see the humanity in their miss, whether it's in their communities, their families, or their workplace, and to tap into that and try and bring people together to a, to a, uh, a common set of ambitions, no matter what the task is. So, yes, I'm absolutely convinced that if we had a more gender orient, a, a more female oriented approach, then that dominant gender experience for women would assist men in our remit as well. Thank you, Sharon. That, that's that's really interesting what you've just said. And I'd like to ask you, Sylvie, directly, Sylvia, because you are a CEO. Do you leave yourself at the door when you go into the office in the morning or do you take yourself with you? And, and do you feel that you run your company in a different way because you are a woman than if you were a man? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, so I'd say when I leave my house to go to the office, I... I have to sort of take myself as this mixed person to the office, the, as a leader that is expected to meet certain obligations and also act up to a certain standard. But I also don't forget my female side and also as a mother um, to a daughter, I carry that um, along as well. And... Um, I speak about my daughter because it's very important that we realize a lot of the time the type of leaders we are or the kind of people we are is actually shaped by our own lived experiences and the people around us. So I know the challenges that a woman can go through um, being a woman. And I look at my daughter and I look at other people around me, other young people that I engage with and also other women and mothers uh, that come to work and I have to think around how do I make their lives easier um, at the workplace? What kind of policies do we have at the workplace to support these women who are parents as well, who are mothers? Now, what can we do to support them? Um, when we look at the challenges that women in leadership face and some of them cut across sectors, I am in the technology sector and we have our challenges in the technology sector as women. Um, but then I've come to learn that a lot of those challenges cut across sectors, irrespective of what sector you are in. So again, when I look at myself as a woman and the challenges that I've had to face um, in the tech sector, again, I bring that to the workplace and think around how do we make uh, lives better for women in technology, for instance? Um, how do we um, ensure that there's representation at the workplace uh, where we can see all these different women, you know, from women from the rural areas, women from the urban areas, uh, single mothers, um, all those things. How do we 
bring that face and ensure there's inclusivity um, at the workplace. So yes, I do draw back onto my experiences and also from home, um, my family members, and bring that, that into the workplace to try and make life better for everyone else at the workplace. Um, but then there's the other side as well, um, where as a leader, you're supposed to behave a certain way, you're supposed to uh, do things a certain way, for instance, looking at integrity um, and ethical issues. Those are not necessarily from home, but an expectation uh, from a leader. So again, I have to leave to what the, the world expects of me as a leader. So it's got to be a mix of the two. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, Anna, as a, as a leader in the conservation sector, you're not just leading a team, you're also leading us to a, a better world, a more re regenerative, um, biodiverse, rich uh, world. Um, do you feel that you need to behave in a certain way to, to bring that to the organisation and to be seen in the outside world? And 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 do you feel, especially in the conservation space, that it's even more important perhaps to have um, this diversity of voices, the women and men, because you've kind of got this dual task of of leading a team, but also of the bigger expectations that are out there from you in the world? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so do I need to behave a certain way or is there a certain expectation? Um, it, you know, yes, there's always going to be expectations on us. But I think, that, again, that's that's going to be in any role that you have as a leader. You do have an expectation um, to, I think, lead by example. That's something that's very important, especially if we're working in, in a space like I am in the conservation sector. There's going to be certain choices that I would hope that I would intrinsically make that are, are good and representative of the organization and the sector in which I work. Um, so there are there are those kinds of um, you know expectations. But I will say, um, you know, I think from a leadership style perspective, you have to remain authentic to yourself. And if you start to feel that you are playing a role, that you're playing a part, that you are are doing something because of an external expectation of you. You really need to come back and ask yourself, is this authentic to me? And if it's not, am I the right person in this position? And I think that's very important. Um, and I, I encourage anyone who finds themselves in a role that is a representative role, a role that is a leadership role, to really ask themselves, is this authentically me? Because that's then where that kind of true leadership will shine through. That's where the sincerity is become so so apparent um and you know as as i was listening to sharon and sylvia i was thinking about this concept of a three-legged stool and that life and and us as as employees of organizations or as leaders of organizations we have this kind of responsibility of a three-legged stool and that three-legged stool is a responsibility to our careers to our professional lives but it's also to our personal lives, to our loved ones, and then to our communities. And ensuring that each one of those legs of that stool, the community, your loved ones, your family, and um, your career are in balance in a way that that stool can remain strong and sturdy. So um, those were just some of my reflections. That's a really nice way of looking at it is this need for balance and and uh, yeah, it, not just equality between the sexes, but also balance with you as a as a person. And Sharon, you mentioned the idea of um, women, I think you said being co-opted uh, sort of into the, the male way of thinking almost. And, and Anna just mentioned the idea that you need to remain authentic to yourself. So in terms of yourself as a leader, what could you give us an example perhaps or or some thinking around how do you remain authentic if as a woman you're in a world which is very perhaps different, is a male-focused um, world or a male-dominated world. Um, I mean, we're in the lead up to COP28 at the moment and the few female politicians who will be there will be very much in a male world. Um, so how do they remain authentic and not be co-opted into perhaps a more male or a different way of thinking? Well, I, I don't think it's just gender specific. I think we've created these institutions. Yes, of course, that's been dominated by male leadership, but it's a set of expectations. 
and it takes courage. I think, um, you know, that balance is absolutely right. And the three-legged stool is a lovely concept around that. But remember, on top of the legs, you've got this solid block that you sit on, that you actually occupy. And so I think it takes, it takes courage to occupy that seat with the three-legged uh, influences or the, the influence of family, community, and, uh, and uh, the economy all wrapped into one. And many of us will sit predominantly in one of those legs, but we have to understand all three of them if we're going to actually find a solidity that is about uh, a more united, a more uh, socially uh, um, con- connected world that can deal with the challenges of today. So going into COP, we have this terrible environment where, yes, we have to move on from fossil fuels. The world knows we have to move on from fossil fuels. Is that easy? No. Have we built an industrial revolution based on it? Yes. Have, uh, you know, my life's been dedicated to making sure that people, particularly workers and their families, actually benefit from the advantages of that industrial revolution and the economy that we've built. It hasn't been the case that we've created equality. It hasn't been the case that business and uh, government and society have been in cooperative endeavour to build the social protections, the resilience, those vital public services, or to deal with the science that tells us that we're, you know, we're actually destroying nature, our very common home. And so going into COP, we've got all these vested interests. We've got people who are terribly committed, you know, to the notion that we have to find different ways of managing our economy. We have to find more human approaches to actually generating shared prosperity. We have to find more inclusive and generous hearts around looking at how we deal with refugees from not just the conflict in the world today, that's extraordinary, got greater levels of conflict than we've had since the Great World Wars, but also the damage to people's homes with extreme weather events and uh, and the subsequent collapse of livelihoods and risk to economies generally. So can we deal with that in a dominant model of thinking? No, we can't. We don't, that doesn't mean we throw everything out that we've learned or know. But if you take fossil fuel companies, for example, my frustration with them is they should be our leaders. They have the capex, they have the technology, they have the infrastructure, they have the skilled workforce and the capacity for innovation to move their capital, to actually be leaders in, in a more, um, you know, distributed energy world where they can help us with the investment in green hydrogen, so expensive, so vital, based on renewables. They can help us look at solving the concerns that people have about damaging their land with, you know, wind energy and so on, with offshore platforms that can be repurposed. There's so much we could do together. But indeed, while I think there is great heart from many, many businesses, certainly from the areas that you know, others work in and that I work in around community and climate and renewables and energy security, there isn't yet great heart and great partnerships with those oil and gas companies. And we need to change that. It's women's voices, I think, who can actually help us based on the demands of a younger generation. Because if you look at the the Gretas of the world, they are demanding that we do not continue business as usual. But we have to find the solutions with them to actually something where everybody can prosper. So it is about rethinking our world, renewing it, building on the best of it, and being prepared to move on from the worst. There are many technologies we've discarded over time. But, and women who uh, have managed families know that all too well. We are lucky to have the technological revolutions of today, which means we can balance our lives share that hopefully in terms of care with increasingly with men but nevertheless it does need a level of courage to build on those three legs to create the 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 stability 
of a world that we can all sit in with comfort. Yeah, so thank you, Sharon, for, for that. I think what you said is really interesting, is this need for, for more women and for more diversity to, to move these discussions forward. Anna, And I would work... say one more thing, Philippa, yep. just to your initial question. I think for women, they don't always expect to be loved. Like, you yeah. know, if you're a mother or a daughter or, or, you know, and you live in a mixed world where you have to deal with the genders and the emotions and the passion, you want to be respected. You don't always have to be loved. So, yes, it takes courage, but it takes a strength of self that I think women develop more easily in some ways. Our egos aren't as easily bruised. And I would say to make sure that, you know, Anna's point is taken seriously, we need mentors that make sure that we are not losing our true selves doesn't mean formal mentors, but I think women more naturally seek out, you know, thoughtful kind of reflective um, voices to make sure that we're all on the same path. So courage, yes, but a real sense that you don't have to conform to what everybody else thinks. You do need to build respect, but you don't need to be loved by everybody. Indeed, yes. And we can't be loved by everybody, I don't think. And anybody who's got teenage children will definitely know that you can't be loved by <laughs> exactly. your children. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good preparation for the workplace. Um, Anna, I wanted to, to come back to you on some of these, these points. So, you know, you're in a, a large organisation. How do we put this into practice whereby we're not just increasing? You've, you've all mentioned the words of, of resilience and inclusivity. But how do you actually put that into practice within a, a large organisation when you're working with people from different backgrounds, uh, different time zones, different countries with different expectations? You know, what do you do as a as a leader in your organisation to try and put some of this into practice? Well, I do a lot of listening. And and that is something that, um, you know, I think. We all, and we talk a lot about this in leadership circles and, and you know, building consensus and all of that, that it starts with listening, but it's, it does. It absolutely does. It's so basic. It is that sincere, active listening where you are genuinely curious about what someone else has to say, and you are open and you have the humility to change your mind, to change your perspective of, of what it was that you were hoping to do. But I do want to come back to what Sharon said. It's also being courageous and having that sense, that deep rooted sense of understanding and confidence. And that's something that we can all help one another, whether, you know, regardless of gender, we can help one another develop that and, and, and be sure in that. But that courage to be bold, that courage to, um, to stay true to one's instincts and, and self, but the openness to listen and, um, you know, that is something that is absolutely hallmark to, to our organization, certainly working across um, many different countries and, and time zones, as you mentioned, um, listening is, is absolutely key. Yeah. We've talked a lot um, about uh, male-female division and why we need more women um, generally as, as leaders. Um, but obviously, you've also all mentioned the importance of inclusivity, diversity, and a diverse workspace means also people of different ages, different colour, different backgrounds. And I, I was interested to know, Sylvia, whether in your role as CEO, whether you've put in place specific um, policies or ways of working to encourage a more diverse workplace in, in a, more broadly than just uh, men and women. Yes, uh, thank you very much. So in my role, what I'm trying to do is, of course, have policies that support women um, in the workplace. For instance, um, ensuring that uh, mothers who need to go on maternity leave are able to get that opportunity. And also, and, and I'm also very glad that uh, the government of Kenya is also supporting this. So they've recently introduced um, parental leave for fathers as well. So getting implementing some of those policies that are already set by governments and making sure that the HR policies adopt to those policies is key for us to ensure that um, 
parents are comfortable. So not just women, but even the, the fathers um, who have to be at home to support uh, women when they get uh, babies and just make it comfortable for them. Another thing that we do is we do a lot of trainings uh, to sensitize um, our workers on the need to um, recognize that we come from different backgrounds, we have uh, different cultures, and to not feel that another culture is superior to another. Because, um, and especially when engaging with international communities, because sometimes you find that um, some people will not understand why others are behaving a certain way. So for instance, um, and generally in the African societies, you find greetings are very important. Um, just uh, even beginning a meeting without saying hello to people is found to be very rude. Um, so just um, ensuring that we have education around cultural differences and cultural sensitivities so that then um, we have a more inclusive um, workplace. Um, and also looking at gender roles and because it's very different, for instance, in the African context um, and maybe looking at the Asian context or the American context, you find um, how women are valued is very different. So some societies, for instance, embrace women more, uh, women leaders more than others. And so it's important to be sensitive around those things and to just educate on the need to include um, other genders and to also uh, give opportunities to people from um, uh, diverse pers perspectives and the importance of doing um, all that. Because again, sometimes if you don't tell people why it's important to have an inclusive workplace and also um, include um, uh, equity in the work that we do, then again, uh, some people will not see value. Um, I may see the value as a leader and also because of my exposure, but that doesn't mean um, everybody around me or the uh, people who work with me understand that. So it's important to educate. Um, the other thing is to also uh, ensure that you deliberately um, hire uh, uh, balanced genders. Uh, so the policies around hiring and retention need to be very strong and be very deliberate. Uh, uh, and I've seen that, um, especially when it comes to thought leadership in the tech circles, I personally have had to get out of my way to uh, speak to uh, organizers of different events um, on the continent to get women on their panels, uh, for instance, because they'll say, oh, you know, we can't get women uh, for these panels. And yet I know a lot of women who are very uh, knowledgeable um, in um, uh, different fields, but they will just not put themselves out there. Um, so it's it, it takes deliberate efforts in our hiring and just ensuring that we put women in these spaces where they would not necessarily put themselves. When there's calls for people to speak, um, most of the time women hold back and sometimes it just takes uh, someone nudging um, a woman to speak um, on a certain topic and they will do it. Uh, so we have to be deliberate. Excellent. That, that's a really interesting, Sylvia. Thank you. Um, Anna, I wanted to ask you, um, because Sylvia just mentioned two words there. She said we have to be deliberate and we have to nudge. Do we need um, policies in place which demand that, you know, we have a 50-50 male-female split or we have uh, co-presidents of political parties where we have men and women? Or, as Sylvia suggested, also we just have to nudge people by giving people the right training or the right education? What, what's a good approach, do you think? I loved what Sylvia said about, um, as I was listening to it, it's about the why. Why does it matter? Why is it valuable to have gender equality? Why is it valuable to have this inclusive this inclusivity in our workplace? Why is it <clears throat> Why is it valuable to strive for a more inclusive world? It's coming back to that. And, you know, I think, we always need to be careful when something is mandated without the proper education, as Silvio was saying, without the proper explanation of why we are doing this, that mandate can actually cause a backlash of, you know, well, I don't want to be told what to do and I don't want the change. And unless you educate people, unless you explain why this is valuable, um, you know, you're really going to, to have a bit of a struggle. So I would say, um, you know, it's a balance. Of course, it's a balance. I, I also loved the idea 
Sylvia, as you were talking, thinking about that there will be some people um, of, of any gender who may not be the first one to speak up, but that doesn't mean that they don't have something exceptionally valuable, wise, a perspective that we need to hear. And so again, as leaders, it's important for us to, to draw out those who maybe are not going to be the first one to raise their hand, but to say, I see you, I value you, I want to hear your contribution here. And that is a role that all leaders have, I feel, is, is to bring those voices in um, and, and to recognize the contributions that they can make, even if they're not the first ones to shout it out. I think that that's great to hear. And if, if all leaders were like that, we'd, I think we'd be definitely in a, in a better situation. Um, Sharon, a lot of your work that you, you doing, you've been doing is around the just transition. So the idea that the, the move to a, a, a better, cleaner, more regenerative uh, society is fair for everyone. Um, in terms of, of gender or, or diversity, Again, it's a similar question. Do you think we need to put in place um, quotas or, or clear policies to make this happen? Or do you think there are softer ways of, of managing a, a just transition? So I think there are two perspectives here and they overlap clearly. On the, on the question that Anna and Sylvia answered more directly about quotas and, uh, you know, sort of visibility, then visibility is a great word because... If you don't have visibility of culture or indeed visibility of gender or in visibility of um, age, uh, collaboration, whatever it is, then you are not going to actually find the, uh, the consultative, let alone the deliberative and managerial models that make for a just transition. So I want to come back to that. But on the question of um, mandates, I've got a slightly harder view I've spent a lot of time listening to we must educate, we must educate. And when I'm told, and this is not so long ago, actually, when there was a position that clearly had to go to a woman, not because there was a mandate to say you need equal positions, but there was a mandate in our own organisation to say that you had to, to have at least, at least in the leadership mix. I was told simply by another man, a man I value actually and worked with for years, but we have no women, Sharon. Think about that. We have no women. So I must say, I think whether it's an absolute mandate for positions, I understand people might want to think that through. But I do think there should be mandates. There should be rules. You know, you can't have an all-male panel. And what that's, that's pretty uh, lowest common denominator. One woman on a panel, you know, and that's inadequate from my perspective. But at least... Not no all male panels is a good start, you know. You know when you look at a groups of positions, can you actually say there should be at least, you know, X representation, um, so that you give women the opportunity, not just because they're selected by men, but you give women the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to put my hand up for that, supported by others, but I'm going to put my hand up for that. So, I am a bit of a rules and vigilance girl, I have to say. Because we think we've won things through legislative frames, non-discrimination, you know, sex discrimination commissions, anti-discrimination commissioners, you know, all sorts of legislative architecture at, at national and international level. And yet it hasn't shifted the culture. And I would say the same, Sylvia, for your respect of different cultures. I are we going through this terrible debate in my own country at the moment about um, what should be really joyful? It should be really joyful that we are about to recognise finally in a colonial, uh, uh, um, a colonised nation, the Indigenous people of Australia, the oldest living culture in the world, 65,000 years old, in our constitution, through a consultative voice, a voice to parliament. It's in some ways the, the minimum that these, this incredible cultural culture, its people and leaders could ask of the rest of us. And yet I have to say the politicised racism that's evoked is, and the fear, if I'm a bit more generous, the fear of difference, you know, in terms of a perception wrong 
but a perception of different treatment. And I say this because it's distressing as this is, I do think we have to have this debate or we're not going to get that just transition. Because if it's in a, in a climate environment or in a technological environment or any environment where from a workplace point of view, we have to transition, then people need A, to be included. If you don't have a seat at the table, if that voice is not representative, if you can't co-create where it's possible, but at least co-affirm a, a, a pathway forward, know the plan, it should be transparent. And if in our financial models, we don't actually build in the processes for just transition, the deliberative, consultative, you know, um, uh, time-based processes, as well as resources for actual meetings, then we will fail. And then if we don't build in, of course, the outcomes we all agree on in terms of financing the transition, we'll also fail. So whether it's skills development, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitation where we close down coal-fired power stations or we open up, you know, or we're cleaning up critical minerals or whatever it might be. So absolutely getting an understanding that people have to be visible, they have to be included, they have to be respected for their contribution and their knowledge, because sometimes the knowledge is not scientific, it's not technical, but it's deeply thoughtful and understanding. And if we ignore it, we'll fail. And if to come back to a business reality, because in the end I've learned you have to make the business case, there's a, a fab, fabulous woman from Systemic. I'll give you her name, Philip, because uh, Catherine, but I've forgotten her surname momentarily, seniors moment, sorry. Um, but she gave a figure last week. We're in this forum and she said, Sharon, you will love this figure. But she has worked out uh, in the way that those uh, clever statisticians do that if we don't involve people in consultative processes, we will risk $100 billion a year in climate finance because it will fail, it will be delayed, it will be obstructed, you know, there will be obstructions. Whatever the, the barriers that are put in place, if you start with involvement. Now, again, not everybody is going to agree. You know, if we all agreed, the world would be a much simpler place. But that's what democracy and deliberative democratic processes, consultation, whatever name you want to put on it, are about. We do need to get the bulk of people to actually have a feeling that they've got a voice and a stake in the future that we're building. That's just transition. Thank you, Sharon. I think uh, myself, Anna and Sylvie, we're all nodding our heads madly at what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> it was that was really clear. I mean, what you're saying makes eminent sense, and it's, it's in the polycrisis that we're in. That's clearly the the way forward. But I want to know how we make this happen. You know, we don't have you know climate change. We've got twenty thirty targets. We're not on on track to meet um, biodiversity loss. Um, Anna, clearly, when you know we've got very very strict targets to meet by twenty thirty. Even in the EU at the moment, there is quite a pushback in terms of wanting to take. Um, ambitious action. How do you feel we can put this in place um, without a risking a further backlash whereby certain people put their heels down and say, this is enough, you know, we're not moving any further. Anna, do you want to try and answer that? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I think including, including the voices is absolutely critical. Sharon was hitting the nail on the head of the importance of having those voices in the dialogue. Um, how do we ensure that we we meet some of our goals or that we have mitigation strategies in place to, to continue to work towards them if we do not meet the timelines? Um, you know, that's difficult. It's I think it's really remaining true to what the objective is. It's again recognizing the importance of it. Um, there's also value, and this is going to get very granular, but there's value in, you know, talking with people about why it matters to them, making it personal. And that is something that so often we will be in these forums and we will be in these dialogues and we will be talking at these very kind of macro level 
about, you know, whatever the topic that, that may be big and, and esoteric. And it becomes such an abstraction that someone who is being affected by climate change, someone whose home has flooded, someone whose um, forest that they relied upon for their livelihood is now gone you know, it becomes such an abstraction that there there's not an understanding of how we can connect from way up here down to down to the individual level. So, you know, I think there's work that can continue to be done there, that we don't remain in a world in which we're talking about these goals and these objectives, but we're using language that is exclusive of someone who maybe does not have a certain level of education. That's something too. So making the dialogue, making the conversation, making this entire process more inclusive of, of everyone. Because truly, when we're talking about a poly crisis, when we're talking about these big issues that are planetary in scale, it involves all of us, it's going to affect all of us. And it's something that it's important that we all are, um, are a part of that dialogue. So Thank you, Anna. And um, Sylvia, you, you mentioned you had a, a daughter. How confident are you that, that that things are going to change and that within her, her lifetime, as she sort of may become leader of a company or an organization, do you feel that the, the discussions we've had are going to go in the right direction? Or are you concerned that perhaps not enough is being done to put in place what Sharon was talking about, that we're not being strong enough to, to make this change happen? Okay, so... I think a lot of work is actually going um, into addressing the gender balance matters across the world. So yes, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done, but um, there's a lot that is going on. And I see this because right now, I, I don't know if this is happening in other parts of the world, but I know in Kenya, for instance, uh, there's a lot of backlash um, especially when we start looking at toxic masculinity, where we see comments like, you know, when there's initiatives around uh, the girls or to empower girls, we get questions like, then what happens to the boy child, right? <laughs> what <laughs> happens to the boy child? Oh, oh, oh. The girl child is getting, is getting more empowered than the boy child. Who are you empowering this girl child for and leaving the boy child behind? So we can see the equation is changing, where we are no longer just hearing about girl-child empowerment, but also seeing a need for the empowerment of the boy-child. Boy um, but what I usually say to those kind of remarks is, yes, there are challenges that the boys are having and we have to address them because they deserve to be addressed, but we cannot run away from the fact that even though we've made strides and we can see some changes, there's still a lot of work that goes into um, supporting the girl child. So let's not look at empowering the girl child as an initiative to fight the boy child, because then we'll be losing the point. It's about addressing specific issues that um, uh, all these genders face and uh, making sure we address those specific issues and not seeing like um, it's a matter of pitching or pitting another gender over another. So a lot of work is going on and I, I see it in Kenya. I can see there's um, a lot of concern for the girl child and a lot of initiatives. And even when you start looking at tech positions, for instance, especially at the lower cadre levels, um, we are beginning to see the change in numbers. Uh, so we find a lot of girls who can build websites, who can code, um, and there's still more work to be done, but those numbers are changing. Where there's still a big problem is in the leadership positions. So we need to start really looking at uh, women leaders, um, women in the boardrooms, um, for instance, because that's where the biggest challenge is. Uh, so long as there's not enough um, female voices in the boardroom or at top leadership levels, then it becomes very difficult to implement policies or even come up with the right policies because they're not there. They're, most of them are still right at the bottom. So in some areas we are making big changes, but in some we still need a lot of work. So I'm pretty confident that um, girls are getting their voices um, and that in maybe, I, I, I don't know what time frame it would be, but there, there are definitely 
baby steps that have been taken and we can see some change, but we still need to do a lot of work. And what I would like to say is that um, we, need, we need the right allies and we need to engage men and boys in the things that we do so that they don't see it like a fight against them and they continue to support us um, when it comes to matters that affect girls and women. Uh, but we also uh, need to assure them that we are also their partners, right? So that they don't see us as enemies <laughs> who are trying to uh, get ahead of them, but more just trying to create an evil, uh, sorry, a level playing field for, for all genders and not fighting each other. Thank you, Sylvia. And I think we're going to have to wrap up there, but I think that was a great place to, to, to wrap up with this idea that you are confident for the future that, that things are changing. Yes, but sorry, can um, I just say, though, that... Oh. You know, a toxic male culture doesn't suit men either. We don't raise our sons to be, you know, to go into workplaces that are toxic and gender divided and not inclusive. And so it's the toxic male culture. But then if we wait, Sylvie, I am frightened because it would take another 50 to 100 years to see gender equality, whether it's wages, whether it's positions. So I think we have to walk and chew gum. We have to show, you're absolutely right, we have to do it together, but we need to educate a very different world that's set on different values. And I don't think anyone that goes to any church in, in the world, I'm not religious, but I grew up in a religious family. And I don't think any uh, preacher, mostly men, but any minister or preacher or whatever would ever stand up and give a sermon saying, you don't actually treat each other respectfully. So it's the toxic male culture that somehow we've let flourish that has to be eliminated. And then you can deal fairly with gender equality. Yeah, very true that we all need to, to work together. And I think the, the statement that came out from the Pope yesterday on climate change in yeah. 2018 is perhaps a, a good way of wrapping this up, this idea that we need inclusivity and we need to hear all those voices and especially the voices as you've mentioned from indigenous populations and from people in the past we've not necessarily heard from they should no longer be on the margins they need to be front and center of of the discussions and that obviously includes women uh, from all backgrounds as well i'd like to thank all three of you for a really really interesting discussion and super inspiring and um, i think we could continue to to discuss for a lot longer and um, so thank you very much for, for um, contributing today. Um, and thank you to, to those who are listening to the podcast, which was brought to you by the Club of Rome in partnership with the BMW Foundation.